Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to study. We ask that you, your spirit, and your angels will join us, that all of our conversations will be to uplift you, and in our minds we'll see you clearly today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly background characters in the Old Testament, and the lesson title this week is Joab, David's Weak Strongman. David's Weak Strongman. Somebody read for us the memory verse, please, which is Proverbs 21.2. We may think we are doing the right thing, but the Lord always knows what is in our heart. Okay, what version was that? Contemporary English. Contemporary English version, yes. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart, is the NIV version. What is this talking about? What's being described? Can you think of examples in your own life uh, that where you've seen this happen? Where a person thinks they're doing the right thing, but the Lord's looking at the heart and it's not so right. Have you ever known somebody who was dating somebody? And it was obvious to everybody else that the person was clearly not qualified. You've never seen this? The person they're dating is wrong down the line. But the person has strong feelings about the one they're dating. And so they don't listen to counsel. You ever seen this? Yes. Yes, it seems right to them. All of us can read the heart and the, and the situation in that matter, can't we? So think about this. For instance, um, do people play mental gymnastics in order to continue down a path that seems right to them, even when it's obviously wrong? What kind of mental gymnastics do people play to make this happen? One of them is called denial. You ever heard of denial? Yeah. Oh, he didn't really mean to hit me. You heard that? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't smoke around me. He only smokes when I'm not around. <laughs> oh, that's okay then, right? Um, she only drinks to deal with her parents. <laughs> or, he may lie to his brother, but he doesn't lie to me. <laughs> or, she only shoplifts from stores. She never steals from people. <laughs> Do you see how, how, how people can deny reality, make these little excuses up so they can avoid dealing with what's obviously in front of them? Or that's called denial. How about rationalization? Well, I've been alone for so long. If, if, if I lose this person, I might never find another. Mm-hmm. So they stay in a relationship that they actually know might not be the best, but they're afraid of being alone. Or he has so much potential. If only he would get in rehab. <laughs> if he'd only give up smoking. If he'd only accept Jesus, he has so much potential. See the rationalization. And he might have potential. She might have potential. But that doesn't mean that where they stand currently today, they're qualified. They're ready. This is the way we may seem what we're doing is right, but yet it's not. So there's a a little pearl you've heard me say before. I'll just say it again. That you can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. If we deal with it now, we can deal with it under God's grace, and there will always be healing and restoration. But if we de- delay long enough, uh, we may delay to the point that we've damaged ourselves beyond repair. So first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson, somebody read that paragraph for us, begins Joab's story. Joab's story is a story of power politics, intrigue, misguided loyalties, jealousy, and stubbornness. 
Joab's time is a time during which survival is not guaranteed by a strong central administration and comprehensive retirement plan. Strong people survive. Weak people quickly seem to fade away. It is during Joab's tenure as David's strongman and caretaker that Israel truly becomes a nation. After the clan feuds and tribal rivalry that characterize the period of the judges, it is the figure of the king, beginning with Saul and later on to a much stronger degree with David and Solomon, that unites Israel, even though the Bible makes it clear that centuries of clan thinking will not be done away with in a matter of 30 or 40 years. Joab's life, as depicted in the Bible, is marred by wars, feuds, and even genocide. Did anything strike you as this as you read this first paragraph for our lesson this week any any questions pop into your mind any like wait a minute any wait a minute moments i had a couple first thing i thought to my about this is um what do you think about the idea that it was under the kings that you that uh, israel was united did you ask why 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 was it under the kings why didn't they become united under the judges what was god's plan or design for Israel? Was it God's plan that they have kings? Okay. Was it God's plan that the kingdom unite? That they have a united kingdom? Or or was it God's plan that they not have kings and they stay divided? Wouldn't they be united under God? The question is, was yes. She says, would they be united? So was it God's plan they'd be united under God? Yes. Okay, so he wanted a united kingdom. So then what, what do you think this means then? God wanted them united, but they didn't unite until they had a king. Why didn't they unify under God's plan? Why did it take a king for them to unify? They wouldn't stay under God. God God's plan didn't use force. Oh, God's plan didn't... She says God's plan didn't use coercive force and fear, didn't use these methods that are talked about here, genocide, feuds, wars, intrigue, um, betrayal, backstabbing. Does it take that to unify human beings? Immature ones. Immature ones. I was thinking, um, could it be that the people of Israel had such a distorted concept of God's methods, his kingdom, his true nature, that the, the, the way his government works, that their thinking was so shaped by the world around them that they couldn't conceive of a united kingdom without a king. And they wanted to model themselves after the nations around them. Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah. What about today? Does God have a plan, a gospel message to go to the world? Could it be that our thinking about God's governments has been so impacted by the way we understand worldly governments that we have accepted a distorted gospel? Is that possible? Do, in other words, do we project onto heaven earthly governments' ways of running? The way earthly governments run, do we project that onto heaven and, and then teach that God runs a universe like earthly governments run? things like God legislating or imposing or enacting laws, and then God running tribunals uh, to determine guilt and innocence, and then God or heavenly juries determining the appropriate penalties, and then eventually God in justice having to afflict the appropriate penalties upon the disobedient. Do, do, we, do we ever teach these ideas? Do you think that this is any different than what Israel was doing? Do we have any evidence whether we should be doing this or shouldn't be doing this? 
Is this a healthy way to look at God's government or an unhealthy way to look at God's government? Yes. Well, it's like separation of church and state. You want the church to have a different kind of government than you want the state to have. Love. I guess it depends on which church. Yes. Some churches don't want it different, do they? Yeah. This is out of the book, Amazing Grace, page 15. It says, To Daniel was given a vision of fierce beasts. Remember the, the vision of Daniel, the fierce beasts? Representing the powers of earth. But the ensign of the Messiah's kingdom is a lamb. While earthly kingdoms rule by ascendancy of physical power, Christ is to banish every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion. His kingdom was to be established to uplift and ennoble fallen humanity. Now those, do those sound like the same types of, of governments running there? Christ is to banish every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion. What does that mean? In real practical terms, what does that mean? No prisons. No prisons. Okay. I like that. Yeah. What else? Freedom. Freedom. Oh, yeah. Real freedom, huh? Why do earthly governments say that we need stiff penalties for lawbreaking? And do they say that? Yes. Why do they say that? What's their reason? They have a reason. Say that louder. Deterrence. Deterrence. What does it mean? Stiff penalties. The idea. Stiff penalties deter lawbreaking. What? What's? What motivation is coming in there? Fear. Would we say that's coercive pressure? <laughs> well, wait a minute. It says that Christ is to banish every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is to be banished. Well, do we teach that God? is coercing by his threats to punish. Are we, are we substantiating this earthly God concept, this, this earthly government, by suggesting that if we don't reconcile to God, he will be forced to punish and we're under threat? Thoughts about that? Questions? Yes. Sin must be punished, urged Satan. Okay, Desire of Ages 762 is where he was quoting. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This was in the opening of the great controversy. Satan had alleged that the law of God could not be obeyed. This is, what, this is the paragraph. It starts out. That uh, if man should sin, that every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. How many are still making that same argument today? Jim. Uh, just backing up just a tad, uh, I would say that part of it is common sense. Uh, the punishment that we have here many times is not a, like in Singapore. They have caning. They say a man gets one caning in his life. He'll never get another. Now, it's not fear. It's common sense that he's decided, I do not want that. So, I mean... <laughs> Common sense based on fear. fear. <laughs> I mean, you may not fear it. You still want to do, endure the pain. God came, so to speak, Israel quite a number of times by allowing them to be taken away by groups and so on. How would it work for a young man to go up to a young woman in Singapore and say, hey, I want you to go out with me. Uh, and if you do, I won't cane you. If she goes out with him because she doesn't want to get caned, would that be common sense or would that be fear? Coercion. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yes. Okay, over here. I have a question. Yes. Uh, 
a question about Satan's statement. Does he fear punishment himself? Does he feel like he needs to be punished, or is he expecting God to punish him for his mistakes? He's inferring that sinners need punishment. Well, he knows he's a sinner, so what does he expect? From God. Actually, Desire of Ages 762 talks about that, that this is the point, that once man sinned, Satan believed he was now secure because God couldn't punish Satan. See, Satan believed that God would have to punish him. And so now God couldn't punish Satan without punishing man, and he knew God didn't want to punish man, and so therefore he thought he had God uh, under the wraps here. This was the, the whole kind of distorted thinking that Satan put forward. Yeah. So, but wait a minute. God did give the Ten Commandments to Sinai, didn't he? So how do we understand, if, if God's government is not like earthly governments, how do we understand God's use of law? Why did God give the Ten Commandments? Why? Yes, excellent. Any thoughts? Yes? There, there's a concept rising up here with the concept of fear. It's entrapment. It's, it's not allowing us the freedom to make choices. Love allows us the freedom to experience pain. From choices we make, coercion and fear entraps us. It doesn't. Okay, and, there's, and I like what you're saying, exactly right. If the ultimate consequence for breaking God's law were something that he were to inflict upon us, we're, we have coercive, coercive issues. Okay, What's the ultimate consequence for speeding in Collegedale? Should it be appropriate I bring it up in this room? <laughs> How many have been to this room before? Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes, the ultimate consequence is an imposed penalty. There's no natural consequence for going 45 into 35. That's a complete arbitrary law imposed by the state, or the city in this particular case. There's no natural consequence, whatever. And, uh, and so what happens is the government, in order to make sure the law is enforced, will give its penalty of $200 fine, whatever it might be, an imposed penalty. Uh, figure then you... Yes. Out of, exactly. Out of fear, we, uh, we, uh, yeah. you know, how many of you all relax when you see a cop pulling behind you <laughs> and start following you, right? This is how many view God. We view God as following us like the cop trying to find something to ticket us for. You need to get a radar detector. <laughs> yep. But, but see, as a Christian, we don't have to fear God following us with his recording angel to, because we have Jesus on board and he's got a heavenly radar jammer. So when the father looks at us, he can't see our real sin. He only sees the perfect life of his son. <laughs> you, see the, you see the twisted thinking that people put forth to be protected from the heavenly um, you know, police officer in the sky. But that's not how it is. Um. Why did God give rules? See, with, with speeding law, it's arbitrary. Just They made up a number, for whatever reason, and they impose a penalty. But what, what is a parent in love? Do you give rules to your kids? Brush your teeth. You will bathe at least once a day. Um, with little boys, sometimes this is a rule you have to, have to give. Right, parents? Yeah, yeah, because sometimes little boys don't want to bathe. Um, you will um, be home by a certain time. You, you will have bedtime by a certain time, uh, and so forth. Why do we do this? In the best interest of the person. To protect in the best interest, to love. Now, are the ultimate consequences of not brushing your teeth the, the imposed penalty of getting grounded or losing uh, you know, some privilege? Is that the ultimate consequence of not brushing your teeth? No. no, the ultimate consequence is your teeth rot. You lose your teeth, okay? And maybe even get an infection and maybe even lose your life if it goes septic, 
Okay, so there are real consequences, and these rules that you put in place as a parent are to protect the, uh, the child who doesn't know any better from the ultimate consequences of continued deviations from principles that make life healthy. Is this how it works in God's government? Is this why he gave the law? Well, what do you think about this quote? Mount of Blessing, page 109. See if you agree with it, think it's true, not true. It says, but in heaven, service is not rendered in a spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening of something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There's perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is no drudgery. Love for God makes their service a joy. So in every soul wherein Christ, the hope of glory dwells, his words are re-echoed. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, the law is within my heart. So what do you think? Do you think that's true? Yes. What are the implications? What are the implications of this idea that in heaven, that, that it was like not even considered that there was a law before, before sin? It was written on their hearts. It was internal. It was, it was written on their hearts. It was internal. So what would this say about the kind of government God was running? Was he running a government like earthly governments? No. 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 Go ahead. I think it James. I think it's James, but he calls it the law of liberty. So liberty sounds a whole lot different to me than coercion. Yes, the law of liberty. Exactly right. Do we, for, do we have any scripture that supports this idea that we just read uh, out of Mount of Blessing? 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, and so forth and so on and so on. If the law wasn't given for the righteous, then was it given before sin entered the universe? If it wasn't given for the righteous. Did the law exist in heaven? No. Did it exist in Eden before the fall? No. Or was the law added because our condition required it? In other words, um, how many parents who have adult children, adult children now, living out on their own, married, living on their own, how many of you parents still have rules for your children they must brush their teeth? They must bathe every day. They must, uh, I mean, do you st- uh, is, is that law no longer needed? It's not there. Now, does that mean that the kids uh, have no, uh, there's no usefulness or no benefit from doing these things? Or they maybe have appreciated that, made it part of their life and character. It's written on their heart. They do these things freely without a sense of drudgery because they want to. Yeah. What law? Galatians 3.19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression. There it is. Because of sin, God gave a law because we didn't understand the way his universe runs. We were blinded to the destructive course we were on. We needed a protector. Yes. That could be the description of the law was given. The law was already there. It was the description of the law was given. You look at gravity or any other of the natural laws, they are there, but it's the, the description of the law needs to be made evident to those who are at risk. Oh, I, I appreciate you pointing that out because we're about to make that clarification. Between the law upon which God's universe runs and the written law, which was added. And so the law of love was not added. The laws of nature were not added. 
But what law was at it? The written law. Yes. Where's the quote that uh, Ellen White says that the Ten Commandments were necessary because the the ordinance of circumcision had not been remembered, the covenant of Abraham had not been remembered, and, and the image of God and mankind had not been remembered. Yes. It was fourth or fifth down the line. Yes. yes. She said if man would have kept the law of God in, in, in mind as given in Eden, that he kept the law in mind as uh, given to Abraham in the ordinance of circumcision, there would have been no need for it to written upon tables of stone. And if they would have practiced the, the laws given at Sinai, there would have been no need for the additional ordinances of the ceremonies. And so, yeah, she says that. I don't remember the exact um, quote uh, as far as the reference. I don't remember the reference. Um, but Galatians makes it very clear in Galatians that the law was added as our schoolmaster to teach us and lead us. And she says in First Selective Messages 2.33, when asked, you know, and this has been a great debate in Christianity, some argue, well, the law added in Galatians was the ceremonial law, not the Ten Commandment law. She goes, I'm asked concerning the law in Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer, both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. They were both added. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Did the angels in heaven need a law to honor their mothers and fathers, to not commit adultery? That, that <clears throat> sins passed down three and four generations in the angels. I mean, that's in the written law for humans. It was added for the need that humanity had because of sin. But as Wendell said, the law upon which the Ten Commandments are based it was never added because it emanates from God's character. So, back to our question. Does God run his universe like earthly governments? Imposing laws, sitting up there as the grand judge to impose inflicted penalties upon us for breaking the law. No, it's coercion. All coercion is gone. All right, yes? Keep in mind that what happened here is the exception to the rule. I mean, in heaven and in other places, what is normal for them, we have to have quantify here because we are the exception to the rule. We're the only ones that fell. Yeah, we're the ones that are on emergency life support systems. Yeah. Our planet Earth is on an emergency life support system. You understand that the planet Earth, as soon as man sinned, God withdrew his life-giving glory. This world became a dark place. Remember every time Ellen White came out of vision? Dark, dark, dark is the Earth. Okay, uh, What happened to those robes of light that Adam and Eve were wearing? Where did they emanate from? With God. The angels, every time they appear, they have this appear like fire. Why? Because they're coming from God's presence. Uh, as soon as man sinned, God veiled himself because, what did Ellen White say about if Jesus would have come with the glory that he shared with the Father before his incarnation, he would have destroyed those he came to save. Why? Because he was angry and wrathful and coming with vengeance? No. Because unhealed human beings with sinful hearts and minds can't tolerate the unveiled glory of God's presence. And so God caused an artificial space in, in, in the universe where, where his presence is veiled, that we can survive on a probationary life to find reconciliation with God, and one day he's coming back and will fully reveal himself again and put planet Earth back in harmony with the rest of the universe. Sunday's lesson. It says... Um, down halfway down, it says, During the skirmish, Joab's talking about Joab's younger brother uh, chases Abner. Uh, Abner warns him, Don't, don't, uh, don't uh, attack me. Uh, leave me alone. Leave me alone. He doesn't. So uh, Abner kills Joab's younger brother. Joab never uh, forgets this. And when Abner changes sides and uh, wants to come back to loyalty to David, Joab uh, eventually kills Abner. Question in this whole plot Where is in this story, if you read these stories, where's grace? Where's forgiveness? Where's love? 
Do you see people dominated by selfishness and survival of the fittest? What about today in dealing with our lives? We may not be using swords, but do we still struggle with the same motives of heart where we use the, the, the sword that James talked about, the sword of the tongue, to slash and gash, hurt reputations? Bottom pink section says, perhaps Joab truly believed he was acting in David's best interest when he killed Abner. The, this brings out an important point. Think about your actions. What are the real reasons for some of the things you do as opposed to reasons you use to justify them in your own eyes or your own mind? How can you learn to know the difference between the two when they are indeed different? Any thoughts about that? Do we ever, do we ever take the time with ourselves to step back and go, wait a minute. What's the truth? Why am I doing this? What is my motive? What do I want to get out of this? Am I doing this because it really honors God? Or am I doing this because it promotes me? Do we ever stop and ask those questions? Hard questions. Singing can be like that. You know, you can, you can be, have the idea that singing is a form of worship that can glorify God and unify the believers and actually reach parts of people's minds that other forms of communication. Or you can say, I'm doing a great job, and people are really thinking I have a wonderful voice. You mean people could actually go and do special music at church and, and, and be doing it because they like to be praised? Mm-hmm. Never considered that. <laughs> no, yes, we all, have, we all suffer from that temptation, don't we? Yes. Yes, and how about these, these, these movements in Christianity with these megalopolis movements? Do you think that they could tempt people to become, you know, self-motivated. That's why in our class, as you know, in our ministry, we're working to make this not about me. This isn't about me. And this is why I want more and more of you to get involved so that when I'm out of town, um, you guys can take them up here, take turns teaching. You guys can go out and teach this stuff like I teach it. This shouldn't be about me. It should be about the message. It should be about Jesus Christ and the message, not about me. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, um, it seems that David is not in a position to do anything about the murder of Abner at the time, even though he publicly mourns for Abner and rebukes Joab's action. To avoid future reprisals, Joab tries to integrate himself as closely as possible with David. He sets about to make himself indispensable. He is ready to do the dirty work for David. But striving to make oneself indispensable rather than focusing on doing the right thing uh, often involves violating one's conscience. If that happens again and again, the voice of our conscience becomes duller and duller until we are unable to stand up when it really counts. Thoughts about that? Unpardonable sin. Uh, ultimately leading to, yes, to the point that you have so damaged the, the very faculties God has given you that no amount of truth, no amount of love, no amount of light has any impact on you. Then, then you're beyond reach. That's right. That's the unpardonable sin. The sin that you have no, uh, no conviction of, no, no regrets for, no desire to change from. Yeah, that's right. Um, this happens. This absolutely happens. And uh, neuroscience will show. Uh, in our brain where we reason and think, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, uh, there's a part of our brain right above the bridge of our nose called the ventral medial cortex. It's where we have convictions of guilt, what might call our conscience. Interesting, when the ventral medial cortex is active, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is suppressed. It doesn't work well. Um, and this is uh, well documented in multiple uh, functional imaging scans. And what that means basically is when you have a guilty conscience, you can't think clearly. Isn't that interesting? 
And it's well true. You have to have a clear conscience in order to reason, plan, organize, strategize well. So second paragraph says, sin also breaks credibility. We see this principle repeated several times in the life of David. Because of his sin with Bathsheba and again against Uriah, David, even though he has been forgiven, is unable to discipline his sons. When his oldest son rapes his half-sister and his second son becomes a murderer, David stands helplessly by knowing that he is guilty of similar sins. Thoughts? Well, did David not think that God had forgiven him, or did he think the people were the ones that hadn't forgiven him? I don't, I, I don't know exactly what David thought, but the lesson is implying that David was forgiven, but he had lost uh, his credibility and couldn't, and yes. Why couldn't he just say, don't uh, do what I did, I did wrong, it ruined my life, why don't you change and be something better? So you're questioning the, uh, the uh, conclusions of the quarterly. Yeah, I question them too. Um, first off, when we sin, do we change ourselves? When we sin, do we get changed by the act of sin? Yes. yes. Do we change ourselves to become more healthy, reliable, trustworthy? No. Or less so? Thus, sin decreases the reliability of the sinner. Does this mean that once we've committed sin and had this damage, that we cannot recover through God's grace and be healed and restored? Or can we be through God's grace be restored. Yes. The problem with David, he was forgiven by God. He knew he was forgiven by God, but it looks like he couldn't forgive himself for what he did. Another possibility, maybe. Yeah. Um, credibility. Let's talk about that. If credibility is lost, uh, credibility is lost, and it suggests this is the reason, this is the motive, a loss of credibility. I'm going to suggest that it takes two other things besides sin to lose credibility. Sin alone doesn't lose one's credibility. It takes one, the adi- one additional thing, that that sin becomes known. Mm-hmm. So just because you sin doesn't mean you lose credibility. It has to be known. And two, it has to violate the moral values of the peer group you draw support from. So if, for instance, what does a gangbanger have to do in order to be gain credibility with the gang? Go kill somebody or steal, right? So they have to sin, and in their sin, do they lose credibility or gain credibility? Gain Gain credibility. So we don't lose credibility if the people we're hanging out with value that type of behavior. How about, you may or may not know, but guess who has earned a reputation as one of the greatest heroes of the Al-Qaeda movement? Any guesses? U.S. Army psychiatrist Major Nadal Hassan. You remember who he was? Or is? He, he went uh, about one year ago and on a shooting rampage at uh, Fort Hood and killed a bunch of U.S. soldiers. And he is now uh, hugely respected. He's all a hero around the world for all those who are in Al-Qaeda. Now, he committed sin. And to us, he's lost credibility. To the army, he's lost credibility. But to Al-Qaeda, he's gained massive credibility. So to lose credibility, we have to have both uh, the sin, we have to have it known, and we have to have it uh, not appreciated by the the group that that knows it. Do you agree with that? Yeah. So as we go on with this idea of credibility then, sin um, seems to me that more important than the loss of credibility is the damage that that sin does to to the sinner, regardless of the peer group. So we take the gangbanger. The gangbanger may be praised by his gang, may be a hero within his gang. 
But what has he done to his own character? Has he become more gracious, more kind, more Christ-like? Or has he seared his conscience, warped his, warped his reason? And if he gets reinforcement from a, from a community, like a community of terrorists or whatever, if he gets this reinforcement and praise for doing sin, what happens? Does it help him repent or does it solidify him in rebellion? It justifies his action. It justifies the action. It tells him he's right. It only damages him further and further and, and takes his character further and further away from Christ. So then it comes down to it's really important who you hang out with. Oh, she, she says it comes down to who it's important who you hang out with. What's the scripture saying, Corinthians? Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. Absolutely does. Yes, we have to be wise on those decisions as well. So the idea given here in the lesson is that David stands by and acts idly because he's lost credibility. Um, several people suggested they don't find this persuasive. I didn't find it persuasive either. What about Eli's sons? And Samuel's sons. What happened to them? How did they behave? They were raping women coming to church. These are the priests and then people coming to worship at the sanctuary. They're getting raped by the, by the priests. Now, was it because that Eli and Samuel had public sin that paralyzed them? Is that why? Did Eli, as far as we know, do Eli and Samuel have public sin that, that paralyzed them from and losing credibility in the community? No. no, they didn't. So there's some other thing going on here. I know many parents who have, have not committed some uh, public sin and have not lost public credibility and are very kind and loving and good people, yet they struggle to discipline their children. You ever known anybody like that? Do we have any evidence that David prior to his sin with Bathsheba, was a good disciplinarian father. Do we have any evidence of that at all? No. None. Zero. So this is a huge reach, in my opinion, to draw this conclusion that this is why I think David was struggling. As many powerful leaders often do in leadership, they're taken away by state, they're taken away by responsibilities, they're off the war, doing all this other stuff. David may not have been around much to discipline his kids. Yes? seems like many times discipline or how children are raised is cultural. Um, in my practice, I have children who need a disciplined approach to certain treatments. If I see certain cultural groups enter my rooms, I know I'm going to be successful because of that cultural culture which they live in. Other cultures, they do not discipline their children. And you understand that as well. <coughs> So David is part of a culture. I think those are, are important dynamics and factors. We, we, but are we, are we held captive by our culture? Can we uh, think for ourselves and reason and rise above it? Yes? I guess the question I would ask is, what's the difference between uh, the way Solomon was raised and the way other children of David was raised? Solomon seemed to turn out fine. Did he? Well, I mean, at the beginning he did. He was humble. He asked for he asked for wisdom as opposed to wealth. Yes, I, he started out on the right track. Is it possible that David may have uh, may have learned some lessons? Maybe he was around more. It's, we do know that David was around more. He didn't go off the war as much after this sin, and so having that presence around, and maybe he wasn't around much for the other boys because he was out doing all the combat stuff all the time. They had different mothers. They also had different mothers. Yeah. And that makes a difference, uh, both genetically and uh, environmentally. Yes. 
Well, we, you know, besides the fact that probably, you know, these men, you know, Samuel and Eli and David, they were just, they were busy, they were probably uninvolved to a large degree with the upbringing of their children. But also these men in these positions of power, especially with David, I mean, and, you know, all of the, the power, the, the homage, the wealth, all that, it, it, it's corrupting. And absolutely. You know, distracting, it's corrupting, and, and I think, you know, he just probably wasn't involved. I don't think, obviously, we know Eli wasn't involved in the upbringing of his sons as far as, you know, disciplinary things go, and I think a lot of that was power and the influence, and that was partially what God was trying to protect the children of Israel from was, you know, this whole monarchy and the king and the, the wealth and the corruption that was, was, was is inevitable on this. And we talked about lack of discipline. If a parent is a good disciplinarian, does that guarantee you get a good outcome with your kids? No. No, it absolutely does not. No, it doesn't guarantee that at all. Yes? I think the reason that Solomon got off course is he had too many wives. <laughs> we don't have time to discuss that today. Now... It says in the lesson that he lost credibility. Is it true that David sinned? Yes. Is it true that David genuinely repented and was forgiven of God? And was repentance, and when we come back to God after sin, is it only legal forgiveness that we get? Or do we actually get a new heart and right spirit? Do we get transformed in the inner man? Do we get regenerated in heart? Do we get the mind of Christ? I mean, do we get changed actually in our motives and and heart attitudes? Do we? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. If that happens, then... Do we still continue to live a life without it? Because it talks about credibility. It talks about integrity. That David lost his integrity. And it says down uh, further in the lesson, it says, Although we know that from the life of David that God is merciful and forgives us when we repent, the consequence of a ruined credibility and lack of integrity is still something that we have to carry with us. Do you realize how wrong that is? No. We don't have to carry lack of integrity. Do you know what the definition of integrity is? Definition of integrity is firm adherence to a code of, of especially moral values. If one has repented, if one has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, do they live a life without integrity? No. This is not true. Just because we sin doesn't mean we can't have integrity. We only uh, stay away from integrity if we stay away from God. If we refuse to repent, if we refuse to allow the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, then we won't have integrity. Yes? Second Samuel 12.10 from the clear words, so now cruelty and bloodshed will never leave your family because you ignored my law by committing adultery, killing Uriah, and then taking his wife to be your own. Okay, and what does that mean? That means it's like there's a residual effect of the sin. Okay, does it mean God sits up there and says, I'm going to have to make sure your family suffers because of what you've done? Every family has every family sinned. Every family has sinned. There's not What's, on this earth that's not sin. Um, Thou shalt not make into thee any graven image or any likeness of the heavens above or the earth beneath. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities upon, of the fathers to the sons to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, but showing mercy to a thousand generations of them that love me. What does it mean? I mean, that, that would be in harmony with what you read, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah? What's it mean? Sin damages the person and it gets carried on. That's why... Abuse gets repeated in families. It's why it's what the people learn unless they become converted. 
and then things can change. Oh, I like what she said. Unless they become converted, it carries on. I'll explain the why in a second. Go ahead. This is a question I've had. But why has God at times punished the children and the grandchildren of those that sinned? Okay, he says, why is God... See, there's an assumption in what he says. His assumption was that God punishes the kids and the grandkids. He doesn't. Go ahead. Well, many times uh, there is a consequence for your actions. And you can't, you know, just like you say, a word goes out of your mouth and you can't bring it back in. And the next person hears it or something, and you cannot deny that that consequence from that action will bear fruit. And just because you're sorry for that doesn't mean that, well, now everything's hunky-dory and I'll never have to... Your, your sorrow and, and sadness and, and conviction doesn't change the consequence. So it doesn't change. David's sorrow and repentance didn't uh, resurrect Uriah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Your quote from the commandments, it's conditional. It's for those who, I'm showing mercy to those who love me. It's, I'm only condemning those who don't love me or care for me to their nth generation. Right. And let's explain why. Let's explain why. The way God designed humanity, he designed us for adaptation. We actually change all the way down to the genetic level. Genes get turned on, genes get turned off based on the choices we make. And we pass those gene instruction changes on to our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. That's part of the design. So when Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, they experienced not just a change in belief, that change resulted in a change in the instructions that sit above the DNA code. The DNA code is the sequence of of, of uh, instructions. Above the DNA code is a set of instructions telling the DNA code which genes to turn on, which genes to turn off, and how the gene should be expressed. Um, every cell of your body has the same exact DNA in every cell of your body. Yet your liver cells express different genes than your brain cells, which are different than your bone cells, which are different than your muscle cells. Even though they all have the exact same DNA, they're not expressing that genetic material in the same way. There's a set of instructions that sit above the DNA telling which genes to turn on and turn off. Behavior, uh, belief systems will alter that gene instruction and it gets passed down three and four generations. For instance, we know that if you take one hit of cocaine, one hit of cocaine will turn a gene on in your brain that was previously doing nothing. And this gene begins to produce a protein in your brain called cocaine amphetamine reactive transcript. And this particular protein, once it's being produced, causes increased cravings for more cocaine. Now, if you've taken cocaine and you've turned this gene on and then you have children, you not only pass on the same genetic sequence to your kids, you pass on the instructions of how the genes are turned on and turned off so your kids will be born with a greater propensity to drug addiction problems. Now, you're passing this down three and four generations. Exposures to toxins in the environment. Television watching alters brain development and will alter gene expression. All these things going on. Alcohol alters which genes are expressed in the amygdala of the brain, which is your anxiety center. You pass those things on. So kids will have more anxiety and be more prone to want to drink if you you drink during pregnancy. Okay, And you pass this down through the generations. This is how God made us. He made us in his image so that we were little gods. Doesn't the scripture say we're little gods in Psalms? And we're not God, but we're little gods. And how are we little gods? We have the ability to make beings in our image. And he gave us an ability, it's a marvelous ability, that based on our choices, we change ourselves. And then we can pass those instruction changes on to our kids, and it passes down. Now, notice the sins, though, in the commandment. I think it was mentioned back here. 
the sins are passed down three and four generations of them that hate me. See, if you hate God, do you open your heart to the Holy Spirit? Do you allow his grace? Do you begin following his methods of love in your life? No. But if you love God, you open your heart to him. You begin practicing new methods. We know when this happens, neural circuits will change. This will alter your lifestyle. Lifestyle will change. Gene expression will change. You will actually break these negative patterns in your family when you love God and follow his methods. Quick example. They took um, a few years back in San Diego, they took uh, uh, men with prostate cancer and took samples of the pro- uh, prostate cancer cells, and they looked at the genes, how they were expressed, which ones were turned on, which ones were turned off. Then they took them and they put them on a vegan diet. You know what vegan is. No animal products of any kind, whole food vegan diet, 12 weeks, three months. And then they took same men, prostate cancer cells again, looked at the gene expression after 12 weeks of a vegan diet. Over 30 genes had altered expression in this way. Cancer-inducing genes had been turned off. Cancer-suppressing genes had been turned on from getting on a diet that God designed you to eat. Mercy. I'm not saying like mercy. I'm saying God is showing mercy. Mercy to them. Okay? Okay. God is showing mercy to them that follow his methods. You see? This is how we're designed. It's phenomenal. We pass this along to our kids. I would suggest this is what's happening in Samuel as well. And this is what happened with David. And then, then, then there's the environmental factors that, that uh, Jim uh, talked about here, where we have the, the learning object lessons. We're also made in God's image in this way. Why does God say in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me? Is it because he... Uh, Gets his feelings hurt if we worship another God? That he somehow, as a, as a television program that I saw, that he gains his power from our worship? The television program, God gains his power from the worship of the people. And the more people that worship, the more powerful he gets. Does God gain his power and he needs us to worship him? I mean, why does he say to worship him? Because part of the design... Part of the design in psychiatry is called modeling, and scripture is called by beholding we become changed. We actually change based on what we admire and worship. And God knows that on planet Earth, the highest created beings on Earth are, are us. And if we worship anything other than Him, we only degrade ourselves and and and. Uh, de-evolve, if you will, go downward. Only by worshiping him do we develop to the highest pinnacles of development. So it's for our good. This modeling then comes in. We, as a child, have a parent who is somebody who goes out and murders and steals. We look up to our parents, don't we? We admire this. We become like this because we're modeling the behavior of our parents. So we also are changed in this way. Yes, Jim. I think uh, an important part to understand on that command is the positive side. That it is a command to worship him. Yes. And we ignore that. We say, well, I don't have any booths or totem poles or anything. And also in that is, thou shalt not bow down and serve these others. And so it, you, we can serve our position. But isn't it for our good that he tells us to do this? Oh, yes. Because yeah. You pointed that out. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to make the point that... It's not just avoiding the bad. We've got to worship the good. To worship him. Absolutely. That's the benefit. Russell, Russell, go ahead. The problem with both of these texts, the, 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 um, the second commandment and the one from Samuel, is that we traditionally view this as an imposed punishment on God. You know, because you do this, I'm going to inflict punishment on the rest of your family. I'm going to inflict punishment on generations. And he's merely telling us 
what will happen because of the deviation right. from the design template. Exactly. I want to point out from the lesson on Monday that they make the comparison in the next paragraph with Joab and Joab's inability to stand up for what's right But I would and loss of integrity. But I would challenge you to think that through. Wait a minute. Here's David committed sin. David repented, experienced new heart, right spirit, restoration, reconciliation with God. Here's Joab commits sin, hardens his heart against God. Do you expect a sinner who has had reconciliation with God, new heart, raised a man after my own heart, this type person now, to have the same integrity as the person who's hardened their heart against God? The lesson is suggesting that. I'm suggesting that's not true. David was restored to integrity. Joab was not. Yes. In Ezekiel 18, it says God will not punish the son that, that is the son of a... God will not punish the son for the sins of the father. Yeah, exactly right. The disciples of the blind men. And this is actually how we can reconcile the scripture and how we just explained it. Because one scripture, if you take it traditionally, the one he read or the commandment, makes it sound like God does punish. And then we have conflict with Ezekiel 18 that you're bringing up. But as we just explained it, we actually see there's complete harmony there. God doesn't inflict this, but yet it still passes down through the design template as he designed us to work. Yeah. All right. Tuesday, second paragraph, Tuesday's lesson. Or says, second Samuel 13 talks about Absalom's premeditated murder of his half-brother goes on to say, um, by taking things into his own hands, Absalom avenged the rape of his sister and restores the family honor. Honor and shame were very important elements of the value system during David's time. Question. What do you think about this idea of honor? What makes such an act as murdering your brother honorable? Do you notice how in this value system, something dishonorable is called honorable in order to restore honor? I mean, this is what they did. Where do such ideas come from? Is this idea that we can murder somebody in order to restore honor to our family, is that any different than the idea put forth by some that God killed his innocent son in order to serve justice and that the guilty might be pardoned? In other words, is calling the legal execution of the innocent in place of the guilty justice any different than murdering your brother and calling it honorable? And as some um, people have said, it's the most unjustice thing in the whole universe, that God would kill his son and call it justice. How would you like to live in the United States if, in our country, when someone was found guilty, um, the government would kill the innocent in their place and set the guilty free? Would you call that just? that's what we're basically saying in that model we have to have a better explanation do you know that today we still have honor killings going on in the world a woman gets raped her family will kill her to restore honor to the family think about that when the the commandment says honor your father and mother does that mean if they embarrass you you should kill them (laughs) there's something warped here isn't there Yes. That's not grace. That's works. That's not grace. It's works. Did anyone want to comment on the idea of uh, God killing the innocent in place of the guilty? No. Okay. Think about that one. Meditate on it. If you have questions, let's talk about it. Those behind the terrorist attacks here in our country on September 11 um, believe they were doing the honorable thing. They believe that America has persecuted Islam, and by striking back and killing innocent people, that was a way to restore honor to Islam. 
Well, they hate our culture. They think we're much too liberal and too um, provocative compared to their cultures. So they, they hate us for that, too. Also, the Old Testament says eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Yes. So that's what they're practicing. The Old Testament says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, limb for a limb, bruise for bruise, life for life. Exodus chapter 21. What's it mean? No more than. No more than. See, the problem was, this was not God's ideal. And we get this in, in the New Testament when Christ said, you've heard it say an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say, turn the other cheek. Okay, this was not his idea. What was happening? He had a group of people. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. And some people ask, well, why was it that God would say stone the person t- picking up sticks on Sabbath? Why would he say the rebellious son who curses the father should be taken out and stoned? Why would he say this stuff? Imagine that you are, uh, uh, let's see. Okay, uh, NPR reporter four or five years ago went to Iraq to discover why there are so many uh, civilians being killed during this conflict that we have going on over there. And I think I've told this story sometime in the past, but I'll tell it again. He reported on a grocer and his um, three employees who were shot and killed in the store firebombed by locals, not by the military, by locals, because they did not display their vegetables in the proper manner. A local um, cleric had put out a fatwa, an instruction, that celery stalks were not to be uh, displayed next to tomatoes because somebody might get the idea that that could represent an erect male. This is the, the reason it was put out. They uh, broke that, had celery stalks next to tomatoes, so that all four were shot and killed in the store firebomb. Now, if you're a mayor of... Let's say you're the, 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 the overseeing mayor of, uh, of Baghdad for the U.S. government right, while we're occupying over there. In your judgment, which is more serious crime? Driving drunk or standing up celery stalks next to tomatoes? Which is more serious in your judgment? If they believe that standing up celery stalks next to tomatoes is a crime punishable by death, if you want them to believe that driving drunk is at least as that serious, what penalty will you have to give it? Death. If you give it a $500 fine, a loss of a license for 12 months, will they think driving drunk is as bad as standing up celery stalks? No. No. This is why God gave the death penalty in the Old Testament so many places. Because they thought trivial things warranted death. And therefore, God had to say, okay, I've got to at least meet them where they are. And so he reported on another case, reported report on another case of a little boy who was out playing, who was 12 years old, playing, uh, throwing stones that boys often do out in the field, hit a cow in the eye and blinded one of the cow's eyes. The owner of the cow shot and killed the boy for blinding his eye. The scripture would have said, nope, the worst you can do to that boy is you can take his eye. You can't kill him. Eye for an eye. This is why the law was put into place, not as a standard to live by, but as a limitation on the brutality of the hearts of men that were living at that time. All right, Wednesday's lesson. In the first paragraph, Joab was seeking to scheme by, by, by setting himself up as being uh, loyal to David means you had to be loyal to Joab. This is what he was saying. If you're going to be loyal to David, you need to be loyal to Joab. Joab's, Joab's David's man. He linked himself. With David, in other words. Do we ever struggle with similar confusions of loyalties today? What about loyalty to God means loyalty to modern-day Israel? Do you know that's a common belief held? Is that true? 
What about the idea of loyalty to God means loyalty to a particular church? What about the idea that if you are loyal to the church, you're loyal to a particular pastor? Is that always true? Or does that confuse loyalties? Does loyalty to the church sometimes mean you need to stand up against a pastor? Hmm. Should we question our loyalties? Who are we to be loyal to? In Thursday's lesson, David is old and cold, and they bring a woman of high metabolism to be a nice little warm water bottle to him. (laughs) Those were the days, guys. But it says that he never knew her. They were not introduced. No, of course, you know, that means they didn't have any physical intimate relationships. Joab attempts a coup during this time, thinking David is weak. And uh, at this time, uh, uh, Nathan and David uh, install Solomon as a co-regent for the next, I think, three to five years until whatever it was until David died. Um, and then it talks about in the paragraph here, and I wish we had time to really go into it. It says, Joe forgets that, that God is not David. God cannot be fooled. Even though retribution may not come immediately, it will one day come. If not in this life, then in the final judgment. However, often at the end of the day uh, in, in this life, even a very, a very long day, a man reaps what he sows. What do you think about this idea of retribution? Does God seek or take retribution? Do we have a retributive God? No. Do you know that's taught, commonly taught? And I don't have time to read it uh, in, the, uh, the, in the notes. There's a quote from Signs of the Times, uh, January 20, 1890, where um, Ellen White talks about um, Satan misrepresenting God as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. And then... Um, the, the quote that many like to, to hang on that suggests that God is revengeful is Romans twelve nineteen, where the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And many use this as proof that God is vengeful and will take revenge. I would just point you to Isaiah 1, 24 and 25. You should write that down in the margin of your Bible next to Romans 12, 19. Next to Romans 1, write Isaiah 1, 24 and 25. Because one of the rules of Scripture is that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? Listen to what it says in Isaiah 1, 24 and 25. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. What is God's vengeance? Healing Healing us, cleansing us from sin. God doesn't take vengeance on sinners. He takes vengeance on sin, and he destroys sin in the heart of the sinner. That's what he does. It is not this other thing that is put out there. And so um, when you recognize it, it's like an also, yeah, take vengeance, Lord. Get rid of all that sin in my heart. That's what I want. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not as you have been misrepresented, that you are gracious, you are kind, you are patient, you are loving. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to reveal to us the true, the truth about your character. May we see and appreciate your, your kingdom. May, may we open our hearts in trust and we ask that you will write your law of love on our, our hearts and minds. Give us the wisdom and discernment to be able to tell the right from the wrong and live in harmony with your kingdom. And we ask that you will bless this class and, and bless our efforts that we can spread the truth about your good kingdom to this world and that uh, we can see you coming very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.